0: Yeah, but what is it? Okay, never mind. Pokemon. All right. uh, The uh, uh, scripture lesson from today is uh, from Colossians uh, first chapter 15 through 29. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body, through death, So as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you uh, continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I'm now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and the generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles in the riches and glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is uh, he who we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. So, uh, if you're keeping track, this is our third crack at uh, uh, this crucial part of this letter. Uh, The lectionary breaks it up, so we're kind of stepping down uh, uh, portion by portion and uh, keeping a little bit from each of the previous weeks. So I think you've heard he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation now, in one way or another for three weeks. Yeah. In today's take on this passage, uh, we're going to see that uh, if Christ is, as we talked about last week, the icon that brings us fullness, if uh, Christ is uh, the beginning, the organizing principle, the thing in which the whole universe hangs together, that's not just a point about the nature or character of God, that also implies something about who we are and what we are, and what our obligations and our responsibilities are. Uh, and just to continue my uh, computer science metaphor, since Mason you know, wasn't able to be here last week for, you know, someone's fault, I don't know who, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'll, I'll use a, another computer science metaphor this week. I'm going to call this one, Opening the Source Code, Divine Shareware. But I'll get to that. Was it the name of the sermon? Yeah. Uh, so if you recall, at first we began by talking about the idea that though we don't share the same exact problems that folks did in in the various churches that Paul was addressing, there are some abiding spiritual dispositions that uh, Paul is addressing in each of these letters. So, you know, I mean, uh, one thing about Resurrection Church, besides its uh, attentiveness to ancient agrarian practices, uh, is, you know, we'll try and repeat it and develop a theme fairly consistently. And uh, the uh, theme we've been looking at so far... Uh, from uh, these Pauline letters are, uh, so far we have three basic options for how spiritual life uh, can go wrong in a way that's not just about those specific contexts but suggests something for us. So if you recall uh, from Thessalonica we had the Roman option. Uh, That's the idea that the primary way that we can uh, deal with the world and our relationship to God is to basically uh, micromanage and control everything. Uh, We had the Dionysian option, and as you recall that's the idea that uh, you know, there's, whether it's a metaphorical or uh, actual opiate, the uh, the tendency behind the Dionysian option is to try and make yourself feel better about the world by ignoring suffering uh, and by uh, turning away from uh, the brokenness of the universe. And then, as we talked about uh, last week, there's this tendency to uh, to say that Christ is not enough; that we need something in addition to Christ and to what's revealed in Christ. Uh, some, uh, some hidden, arcane practice of spiritual wisdom or doctrine that might bring us fullness. So the third kind of option we talked about last week was represented in the idea of uh, Jewish Gnosticism, and uh, that uh, folks would say there is an additional practice or idea or concept that we need in order to be made full. And uh, it sounded like, from what I could hear from Sunday school this morning, there was some pretty awesome kind of overlap between how we're talking about the idea of the resurrection and how we might think about what's going on in, in Jewish Gnosticism. And, you know, the way I kind of talked about it last week was it was uh, Christ is the icon that allows us to directly access uh, the, uh, the, the, not only the divine, but the principle that causes the universe to hang together. And, and uh, this Gnostic strand in Judaism and Colossae at the time was about saying it wasn't enough to focus on Christ, but you needed something else. So uh, the, the icon, too simple for him. So uh, I want to I want to kind of unpack that in the context of, of this week's stuff, but I want us not just to think about uh, Jewish Gnosticism, I want to talk a little bit about the Roman option again. So uh, this is an argument that N.T. Wright makes, and he borrows it from a theologian named C.F. Burney, and there, obviously there won't be a quiz on that. Uh, but uh, they say that this kind of, as I pointed out already, this kind of poem-slash-massive-Greek-run-on-sentence or Hebrew, uh, they see... The, uh, the whole set of things we've been looking at here as a reflection on this central Hebrew concept, and I'm going to have to have Trey help me on the pronunciation because I have no idea. Bereshith? Yeah, yeah, that's close. Yeah. Tell me, do it. Uh, it would be like uh, Bereshith. Yeah, okay, what Trey said. So, uh, it's an important word, and uh, it's, in fact, the uh, first word in the Bible. So, uh, anyone, what is it? Yeah. In the beginning. Yeah, in the beginning. So uh, it is, and it's a really uh, kind of fascinating word. So the bay or be or however Trey said it, part, is uh, uh, the kind of in. But it can also mean like in or with or through. And the reshit part, I guess, uh, usually means beginning. But it's not just a word for beginning uh, that is just about time. It, 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 it should recall, if you all remember, a while back I did a series on John in uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, there is this idea of arche. So an, it, uh, it's a beginning, but it's also like the foundation or the core of or the organizing principle of. So this, this Hebrew word uh, that opens the Bible is something like uh, in or for or through the beginning, the foundation or the core. And so uh, it mirrors, you know, there's the beautiful thing about scripture. All, there's all these kind of repetitions of. The uh, the creation story. So John one one is a repetition of the creation story. In the beginning was the word. And here, uh, NT Wright and this guy CF Bernie argue that this kind of poem or hymn or run on sentence that we've been looking at for three weeks now in in Colossians is a uh, is a reflection on this Hebrew idea of a bereshit. And their point is this: that it establishes that Christ is the Rishith, is the beginning, is the foundation, is the core principle of everything. And then it's applying that idea to all the different ways that Christ is the core principle or the ark or the beginning. So they're reading something like this in verse 15. If you have it there, Christ is the image of the beginning. And in fact, you know, uh, we should you, the idea of image has a fairly strong tie with creation accounts. If we, if we think about it, and anybody have an obvious example about where image and creation are tied together? Eh? Let us make, yeah, in our own image, right? So uh, I think that's one of the kind of interesting things about their argument is there, that this account is picking up all these things from the Jewish creation story and that the idea of image there is, uh, is, is evoking this kind of notion of creation. So Christ is the core or the barisheth or the, uh, the image of uh, the foundation, or the beginning, etc. Second, in, later in 15, he's the firstborn, which, by the way, is one of the primary meanings of Rishith. He's the, the one through whom and, and and through which everything flows. In 17, Christ is uh, supreme. He is before all things and holds all things together. That's a second meaning of, of Rishith, kind of sovereignty. Uh, and then in 18, he is the head of all things, which is a a third meaning, so you can be the foundation or the ark, but you can also be the governing principle. And then in 18, he, Christ is the literal beginning in time of all things. And then finally, late in 18, he's what? He is the firstborn from the dead. So the claim here is that this is a way to talk about, uh, in the context of all the issues and problems we've been talking about that the community in Colossae had, this idea that Christ is the beginning is the archae, is the foundation, is the core principle upon which reality is founded. Which is, you know, like, as we talk more about the kind of Gnostic understanding of the world, that's a, that's a, that's a fairly difficult slap in, 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 the, in the face of those Gnostics. But here's the thing. It, to me, the, if this is a kind of recapitulation of all the different ways that Christ is the core or the archae or the center, why is it that it ends with the idea that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? Because, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're walking through the various kind of things that make Christ sovereign, that uh, put Christ above all things, it's a, it's a kind of weird thing to end with, by the way, firstborn from the dead. So wh- why is it that the list ends with that? What is Paul trying to do here? And why, by the way, even though, you know, I've always said that kind of Paul does have this tendency to always make it about Paul in some ways, so... Uh, bracketing that a little bit. Why is it that Paul uses that transition uh, talking about the firstborn from the dead to immediately talk about his work? That's the kind of puzzle for today. So I want you to go back and think about the Roman option for a second, and then we'll take a jaunt back to Jewish Gnosticism. Now, one of the things that this passage does in comparing Christ to all these cores, or all these beginnings, is that it's something that we've seen all the time. I don't even know if we need to point it out anymore we say this so much, but This is an appropriation of all these different titles that Caesar had the image of God, the representative of God, the head of all things. And so there is a kind of zing here that's built in for talking about the Romans and the Roman option and a statement of Christ's sovereignty. You know, those things I think are relatively clear and interesting or useful. But the one that I am kind of geeked about and thinking about this passage this week is is returned back to thinking about the Gnostic option. Okay, so. Uh, As you all talked about in Sunday School, it sounded like, and as we've talked about before, Gnosticism was this idea about the world that said uh, material reality, uh, created stuff, bodies were like a prison, and hidden inside you was this divine spark, and the goal was to kind of set that spark free. And it wasn't a very Jewish idea, like Jewish folk were not super tied to this idea that there was a secret interior divinity that was hidden and they certainly weren't tied to the idea that the created world is bad because God created the everything and looked at it and what did God say it's good so you know it's a it's a weird kind of uh, Greek import in some ways but what we know from the kind of uh, the, the text here is that there's this tendency that had been creeping in both to Judaism and to the church and uh, you know that there were some real kind of difficult ethical problems with uh, with jewish gnosticism and one of them that we talked about last week this is something that modern visions of of kind of new age spirituality share with gnosticism in some ways is there's this idea that uh, if uh, we say that the body is a prison and material reality is messed up and what we need to do is release this divine spark inside of us and that's the goal of our Spiritual practice we come to all these really weird and I think particularly unjust ways of responding to actual suffering uh, The example I gave a couple of weeks ago was of the person who is hungry or the person who is a victim of violence And they say man it really is tough that I'm a vic- you know that I've been beat up here or that uh, I haven't eaten in a long time and the kind of Gnostic option is to say well the problem here is not that injustice; the problem here is that you're too tied to material reality so if you just adjusted yourself to the fact that the body was an illusion and understood material reality to be a prison, it would, uh, it would change your kind of outlook on the fact that you're a victim of violence or the fact that you were hungry. And you know, one of the things Paul's saying here is that for the Christian, it's not enough to say, hey, let's just forget about this whole material reality thing. For the Christian, uh, the point Paul is making here is that in Christ, who is the foundation The whole of the universe is redeemed. It's not enough for the Christian to say, hey, it's your fault that you're too tied to material reality, so get over it. One of the things that Paul's trying to establish here and to remind the folks in the church in Colossae is that when God redeems the universe, God redeems everything in it. God redeems our bodies. God redeems uh, the material and the created world and that God asks us not only to not surrender to it, but in fact to point ourselves towards it and to work towards fixing it. And the funny thing is, especially in the history of the modern evangelical church, is that a lot of times this basic idea, and I don't know if you all grew up in context like this, but that basic idea would have been associated with what we call the social gospel. Someone would say, oh, your church is a social gospel church. It's interested in questions of justice. And usually when you, when you frame it that way, it would mean something like, well, you're not you know, completely literalist, and you may not be uh, theologically orthodox, and you know what we're kind of worried about is that you'll place the idea of justice over the idea of a focus on Jesus Christ. This is not social gospel in, in that sense. This is Paul making an argument that if we don't see our obligation to the material world into helping to uh, realize its redemption as part of our commitment to christ we are missing what it is that christ is calling us to do we're missing what it is that christ asks us to do in response to what the gnostic option proposes if the gnostic option says hey material reality and history and bodies don't matter that much focus on the divine spark, Christ says, no, the death on the cross and resurrection is about God looking at material reality and asking that we fix it, that we do something about it, that we are called to see it as being and in the process of being redeemed. So Christ is the beginning and the image and all that. Now, what does it mean for us as a spiritual practice? For those of us who, I don't know, we're like kind of always aging and our bodies are always kind of declining. And I don't know, like maybe some of you all, I certainly have at points experienced my body to kind of feel like a prison. I mean, you know what? You get some gout, you you put on a bunch of weight, you get real tired. I don't know, whatever it is, but like, we've all had this experience of feeling like it'd be really nice to imagine that you could bail on, uh, you know, the body and materiality and pursue this like beautiful, vaporous, effortlessly moving divine Spark, and in fact, so much of modern spirituality, especially the kind of folks who are, you know, spiritual but not religious, have this vision of what a relationship to divinity looks like, of what a relationship to God looks like. And to me, uh, not to take a specific hit at a specific tradition, but as a guy who spends a good amount of time in Chapel Hill, along uh, around a lot of folks who are yoga aficionados that don't really have a metaphysical commitment to yoga, but they'll say to everyone, Namaste. As a, as a kind of greeting uh, to, uh, to uh, and, and what does namaste mean let you me know the God in me recognizes the God in you it's a it's a spiritual practice that says there's a divine spark which is internal to me that responds to the divine spark that is internal to you and in fact You know, one of the interesting things about the Western appropriation of yoga is that there's this tradition, which is essentially a kind of Gnostic tradition that's bound up in yoga that is really easy for people to kind of import as a kind of, I don't know, hipster spirituality in some ways that isn't really thinking about the underlying assumptions that are built into it. This idea of a Gnosticism that says our bodies don't matter all that much is a fairly prevalent and, in fact, fairly important idea. And Paul's response to that is that if you see your body, the material world, and history as in some ways an irrelevant aside. What was the quote that you read earlier? Uh, That it's a, a soul carrying around a little corpse. If you view the world that way, you are in a position where you don't see that Christ is the foundation of and the thing that causes all reality to hold together. So for Christian folk, The reason why we care about bodies and history and the material world and all those different things is because we believe Jesus came to redeem those things, to change them, and in fact, to resurrect them. So if you go from that frame, let's pop quickly through uh, the rest of the verses that we haven't looked at very closely. In verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things by making peace through the blood on the cross. Now look, this idea may seem like old hat to us, but it is a revolutionary idea at the time, and it was a shot right to the very heart of this kind of Gnostic, spiritualistic worldview. Because it says, the fullness of God, the whole, the entire fullness, without remainder, dwelled and took up a home in a body. Think about what that means. Think about how radically different that is from the kind of Gnostic proposition. On one hand, if a body is a prison, I don't know, I mean, maybe some people like to hang around in prison, but most of us see prison as a place, which is the opposite of home in some senses. It holds us back from home, and your goal about prison is kind of to get out of it. If you understood the body to be a prison, you certainly wouldn't say the fullness and the entirety of God dwelled or took up home in a body. So if you're of this kind of Gnostic, old school, or modern spiritualistic bent, you probably have this idea that like the reason why there's sin is because you have a connection to your body. That's the, the basic Gnostic idea is like, hey, if you've got sin, it's because you're too worried about your body. And in fact, there's a lot of us who grew up in Christian traditions. I remember in youth group, every, you'd be like, how are you doing? And someone in youth group would say, and at least in Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, they'd say, Oh, dude, I'm totally fleshing out. <laughs> and like, what did what did that mean? It was like, oh, I'm totally giving into the desires of the flesh, which I guess you know, like high school. They're like, oh, flesh it out. But the thing is, Christianity does not, as much as we kind of repeat this idea, simply see the flesh as negative. It's it's kind of careless to just understand the flesh as being only a negative principle, and in fact. What Paul says here is this, that in verse 21, you who were estranged and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless. Now think about that in context to both modern and old school Gnosticism. It totally reverses the ways that you think about all the relevant stuff. It's not our bodies that are estranged. It's our minds Our minds are estranged from God and the point of redemption. And in fact, the means through which God redeems us is not setting free the divine spark, but it's putting it directly inside a body and redeeming it. See, Jesus Christ in the incarnation here turns this kind of logic of the material world being bad and it being a prison on its head and says, not only is the material world good, but God was amazing enough to take the ultimate expression of the material world death and to turn it around to and to make it an element of our redemption such that everything in the cosmos is redeemed. And here's the, I mean, it's like, as you start reading it that way, you see that Paul's not just kind of, you know, laying out propositions. He's like, he's kind of twisting the knife on the Gnostics here in some ways. In verse 23, he says, uh, Christ has set us free and taking a body that estab- and he establishes us and makes us steadfast in faith. faith. That is the core of the gospel without shifting from the hope which was pro- pro- by, promised by the gospel you heard which has been proclaimed to what? What is it proclaimed to? Anybody have it there? All creatures. I mean, the Gnostics are like rolling over at this point because creatureliness was the ultimate representation of something that was just kind of like a body. It was just kind of like a set of drives, a set of impulses. And Paul is saying that Christ has come, has inhabited a body, has redeemed materiality. And in fact, not only has Christ done all those things, but Christ has declared it to creatures and to our creaturely nature. It's the exact reverse of the divine spark being stuck inside some prison. Instead, God is affirming in the incarnation, material reality, bodies, all that stuff, and then orienting it towards and making us whole by bringing it into contact with Christ. To me, it's not only revolutionary, but it's beautiful in terms of the different kinds of implications that it has. And one of the most important implications is that as soon as Paul says, hey, the point and the deal with this whole Christ thing is that Christ is redeemed in a body and is redeeming the material world and cares about individual people and wants to make things better for them and all that stuff, Paul immediately turns to what? What he is doing. Now, like, you know, it does seem like Hey, sometimes Paul does this deal where he makes it all about Paul. But, you know, that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying what it means then, because Christ has been embodied and incarnated and all those things, is that we have a specific demand and obligation that's put on us. There are Gnostics across time who have the luxury of saying something like, well, flesh will be flesh, bodies will be bodies. It is what it is, which is one of like, (laughs) yes, things are consistent with the principle of their own identity. We say, you know, nothing really matters. The material world is going to go away. Uh, all that's relevant is the divine spark. Uh, but we don't get to say any of those things that Gnostics get to say that say it's not a big deal when there is suffering or brokenness or injustice or something to be fixed. What Paul is saying is that Because Christ has been incarnated, we can't just say whatever's going to happen is going to happen. In fact, what we have to say is that because Christ has taken up a body and composed a body, which is the church, we are called to bring our bodies, our whole person, everything that we are, to wrap it up in the fullness of Christ and point it towards the task of redeeming the material world. That's what's so beautiful about this is that Christianity is not a retreat from the material world or from bodies. It is a redemption and reformation of them. And just to make the point about as clear as you can, as Paul finishes this argument, notice what he says. It's not a mystery. It is, in fact, revealed to all the saints. I mean, you couldn't imagine a more crushing insult to the Gnostics who are basically like old-school version of if you were ever up when you were a kid at two in the morning and there were commercials about Dianetics or whatever, or whatever the you know, spiritual system was that you could access to where you could literally go up levels and if you paid the right amount and did the right things, you could finally get to the ultimate secret. And Paul is saying, what differentiates this old-school vision of Gnosticism from Christianity is this, that there is no mystery anymore. That the whole foundation of the universe and the means for accessing God are not mysterious. There's nothing that in any way has to be shrouded in a secret or hidden wisdom. You don't have to level up to access it. It's not like a add-on that you find somewhere. Paul says in 26 and 27, the mystery that has been hidden throughout ages and generations has now been revealed. And remember the Greek for reveal there is what uncovered. To them that God chose to make known to the Gentiles in the glory of his mystery, which is in you the hope of glory. I love that. I absolutely love that, the implication of Christ being embodied, the implication of him redeeming material history, the idea that Gnostics can no longer say, ah, forget about it, bad things are going to happen, but that instead what happens in reality and what happens to people matters. This beautiful idea that there's no esoteric hidden knowledge necessary, that the plan and path. Of salvation, which had been sought by sages for ages, is no longer. The secret at the foundation of the universe is now shareware. The logos is open source code. You don't have to buy a license or do anything to know about it. The crucial thing, the crucial thing is that it is made available to everyone without limitation, without precondition. There is no one that holds the mystery and doles it out and says some people get it and other people don't. There is no path or method that you must achieve and there is no specific limitation on who has access (laughs) to us. The very foundation Of the universe, the mystery uh, hidden from the beginning of time is open and free to us in the person of Christ. Christ is the divine click through. And encountering his face, we encountered the fullness of God's divinity. And that should change us. It's not then just that we say, yeah, I know where the click through is. It's that we are transformed and redeemed so that we are pointed towards the world and we become that icon, his face, his feet, so that we can redeem a fallen world empowered by, driven by and out of our love. For him in a way that is not based on merit, that is not based on identity, that is not based on who you are or where you're from, but instead that is open to everyone as a relationship between the Trinitarian God and individual human beings that takes them and says yes to them and all that they are and makes them something different. That's the beautiful thing. And I'll, I know we got Pokemon, so I'll just say one quack last thing. Hey, it's important, right? So... Praise God. The point of the resurrection is not just that we are freed from the penalty of death, but we are freed to live his fullness, to embrace the totality of the world and to even wish for and desire its full redemption. At the cross, Jesus Christ and the Trinitarian God say no To the idea that what matters is simply ideas and spirits and vapors and metaphysical principles and doctrines. Those things, uh, the entire promise that was made to the nation of Israel in some meaningful way is ultimately and literally put to death there. But Christ, in the same way, not only takes on death, but resurrects and says, yes, to you individually and to us corporately. And by that, I mean, he says yes to your created, your bodily, your material, your yucky, gooey, eye crusted, whatever other bodily thing you want to uh, include there. He says yes to you and all of you and your person and your body, your soul, your mind. All those things are made open to and made, in fact, objects of Christ's redemption. And so ought it be that as we are transformed, we are pointed to other people and we are asked to love them and to work in favor of their redemption too the Christian then does not ignore or uh, uh, try and get away from the brokenness of the world, the pain that bodies experience injustice or any of those things, in fact we are directed to look those things directly in the face and to be his hands and his feet and we are told that we have to do it in a way that invites every person regardless of who they are, what their qualifications are, their level of privilege or any of those things because the source code for the universe is open, the Logos has been revealed to all of us and we are called simply to act alright, amen Uh, questions or discussion although with the same caveats about Pokemon time obviously Uh, yeah, uh, questions or discussion